Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I am your host. And today on the show, we're wrapping up our series with st- on stress responses with our fourth and final stress response called FAWN. Now, uh, we have ga- garnered this name from uh, Pete Walker's early work. Um, in fact, the book that uh, he wrote talking about this, when we first saw it, was Complex PTSD from Surviving to Thriving. Um, and so we've linked that in the show notes below if you want to read it. Um, great, great, great work from Pete. And uh, what we wanted to do today was just lay out the very um, broad overview of what this stress response looks like, um, how it sometimes can mask itself, um, what it even is, and then um, probably most importantly for those of us listening today, how can we support ourselves if we deal with that stress response, and then how can we help our loved ones who might uh, deal with that as their stress response as well. This is, um, I would just say, kind of uncharted territory for me personally. I I didn't know hardly anything about this stress response before we recorded today. And so we did ask uh, Stella Sananai from um, the Memphis Family Connection Center, who's a a therapist there. We did ask her to come on to share um, her perspective and to give us some more detail on that, as well as Becca McKay um, from the ETC Institute. And so she's going to be joining us as well. Um, And we just, it had a great, great, great conversation that was really enlightening to me, but I would say also helped to kind of answer some of the questions that I had. So without any further ado, here's Stella, Becca, and myself discussing the stress response fawn. All right. Well, as I said in the open uh, today, we are here to talk about the fawn response and we've got Stella Sinanai from uh, the Memphis Family Connection Center and Becca McKay from ETC staff with us today. So um, I will say um, before we get started, I would love Stella for you to get to introduce yourself for those who don't know you who are listening today. And so um, obviously Becca has been on with us a lot. And so Becca's a familiar voice here, but Stella, why don't you give, uh, give the people what they want, tell the people who you are and, uh, and, and kind of your, your story of getting here to uh, Memphis. Yeah. So my name is Stella and I'm originally from Albania. I moved here for grad school in 2018 graduated, and then I also completed my internships at the Memphis Family Connection Center. Um, I was hired there after my graduation, and I've been working there for a couple of years. Um, I'm really, really excited for where this is going um, professionally and on a personal level as well. Awesome. And professionally, why don't you tell people kind of what your, you know, what you practice and kind of your, your general work here? Yeah, I work as a clinical therapist with children, adolescents, and adults. I work mainly with children um, and also empowering parents with uh, parenting uh, skills and um, uh, giving them some trauma-informed interventions as well uh, in how to cope with different behaviors that they see. Um, So yeah, that's kind of like my area of work. Great. That's great. Well, let's dive into um, today's topic because, uh, you know, we've, we've sort of I think touched this from afar when we've talked about this so far, but uh, you know, the stress responses, if you ask 10 people on the street, what they are, um, you know, of the 10 who would know that phrase, they would say, Oh, fight, flight, or freeze. Right. And 
you know, we know in recent years, we'll kind of get into this, that, that fawn has kind of been added as um, a recognized stress response. And so we wanted to talk about that today because um, it, it is something that shows up a lot in this space um, that we talk about often in the adopt and foster world and, um, and really, you know, kids have experienced adversity or stress. And so we wanted to kind of cover that today um, in a little more depth than normal. And so, um, Becca, for, for an overview, why don't we start by just kind of defining what, what the fawn stress response is and kind of where it comes from. Absolutely. So um, Pete Walker is a guy who is studying complex PTSD, and he coined the term fawn, and he has begun to kind of expand our understanding of the stress responses. We've talked every um, episode in this series about how it's an automatic response. It's a survival mechanism. It's these things. They're not conscious thoughts. They're just like things that ways that we react to different stressors. Yeah. And so fawn is an interesting one because how it presents itself is so different from the other three. So fawn basically is going to look like people pleasing. What it really is, is at a deeper level is you're so, so scared to make someone else mad or to cause conflict or to do something that you feel is wrong, that you are going to um, basically be a chameleon. So the people that you are around are going to dictate your thoughts, your wants, your needs. And so it's like you lose your access to even what you actually want what you actually think. And all that you can do is just chameleon yourself in these different circumstances and everything that you think is, is uh, determined by other people. And so uh, oftentimes, you know, in his work, uh, Walker found it a lot with child abuse and neglect. And like we've talked about with all of the stress responses, they can come from a number of different things. We all kind of can do all four at different times, but yeah. the fawn one um, can kind of like overpower the other ones. And it can, you know, we don't necessarily fight for ourselves or fly to keep ourselves safe. In Fawn, we really, really try to mirror somebody else so that we can be relationally safe, if that makes sense. Yeah. Stella, would you kind of help us know what, what does this look like when we see it? So if we're, if we're noticing interesting behavior out of our kids, if we're noticing it in ourselves, how, how do we kind of identify this, this stress response? Um, I would say that the first thing that I noticed personally is a hard time saying no to people and mm-hmm. keeping boundaries with them um, because you're constantly trying to be attuned to the needs and the feelings of the other person so that you don't hurt them and you appease them. Um, you're losing touch with your own needs and your own feelings. And often you're not able to identify what am I feeling in this specific situation? What are my thoughts are relating to something that is happening? Um, so there's this loss of identity happening um, which can be overwhelming because then uh, you're like losing touch with your own self. Um, And then also I think um, it's hard to place those boundaries because you're constantly thinking that you will will disappoint these people around you instead of actually voicing your own needs. Um, You're having a hard time identifying your values and what you like. Um, So overall there's this... um, at the cost of your own needs, you are prioritizing the needs of another person. And that can be really hard and overwhelming. Uh, I would imagine so. Yeah. Like that. And Becca, you touched on the fact that we all have um, moments where we experience fight, flight, freeze, or fawn kind of individually. It doesn't have to be your, I'm using air quotes, it doesn't have to be your stress response, but we do all 
experience moments of that. Um, I, I want to speak to people who might be listening to this and, and kind of rolling their eyes uh, and just saying like, oh God, come on. All this is, is just not having a backbone as a person and not being able to be yourself and stand up for yourself. Like this is easy stuff. Um, why don't we kind of remind people of this science, Becca, of a stress response and so that we just are, are all on the same page that as an autonomic nervous system response, this is what comes. Um, do you want to speak to that before we move on into another part? Yeah, absolutely. So the so the stress responses are in the lower part of your brain. And when your body is literally flooded with those stress hormones, it's not like you can just snap out of it. Um, it takes a lot of, I love how you said, Stella, you're attuning to the needs of other people when you're in the fawn response. And that's happening really automatically. So what you're going to have to do over time is attune to your own needs. And it's going to take a lot of intentionality and a lot of self-awareness. Sometimes when we talk about self-awareness, JD, I think people think that it's like really passive or like really like frou-frou, wah-wah, what does that mean? But awareness is so active. Um, Being aware takes so much intention and takes so much energy. And so I think, you know, with with the fawn response, it's just, um, it's going to be your default, That's what's going to happen because of your brain wiring and chemistry. It's going to be your default. And the only way to move out of that default is going to be that awareness, that intentionality, those conversations outside the moment. Um, And and when you start to move out of fawn, Stella, you said you might be afraid of making the other person mad. You might make the other person mad. And then that can flood your body with even more stress hormones that send you right back into it. So it takes time. It takes intentionality. And you've got to find safe, healthy relationships to practice it in. Thank you for that, Becca. So, uh, you know, what we've done with each of the different stress responses in the series is we have kind of talked about how do we, um, how can we support ourselves in the stress response? And so, Stella, I'd love for you to share, you know, for anybody who has um, this response and they identify with this being their main stress response, how can we begin to support ourselves and, and recognize Uh, both recognize it, but also begin to help ourselves and take steps so that when we notice this coming on, we can be able to step into that well. Yeah. As Becca said, I think it takes a lot of self-awareness and um, the same tools that we are using to attune to another person can be used uh, towards ourselves. It just takes time because our brain has been trained to do that, you know, outwardly and not inwardly. Um, I think the first thing is to be able to identify what we are feeling and feeling stars can be helpful for that because when you don't have the words to describe your emotions, sometimes you need something visual, something outside of you uh, to help you be able to become more aware. Um, and then also asking yourself, am I responding Uh, in order to please the other person, or am I honoring my needs right now? Can I identify what those needs are? Um, So questions that can help us discern what this action, uh, where this action is coming from, what what is the purpose behind it, um, to open up um, some new ways of responding. And then honestly, I think what happens with people who have experienced uh, or who have the fond response as a stress response is that they have not been validated for such a long time, either by um, per, like um, parents or, or a caregiver or a significant other person in their lives. Um, and sometimes we are seeking the validation from this other person um, instead of extending the validation towards ourselves. So coming up with self-affirmations, coming up with words that we can tell ourselves to build that self-esteem up and understand that 
my worth is not dictated by another person's behaviors, actions, words. That worth comes from within and I can um, kind of like reflect and, and find that back um, and be rooted uh, instead of just wondering in what other people are thinking about me. That's so good. Thank you for that. I, I think the the natural kind of next step is to think, okay, well, that's, that's how I would handle this for myself, but I've got a six-year-old, I've got a 10-year-old, I've got a 14-year-old that that deals with this same thing. How can I support our kids? So Becca, how do we, how do we begin to, to support our kids in this when they're in this place? Because I would just hand up, I would say, uh, there are probably times when a weary parent feels like, I wish my kids would have a fond response and just do what I ask them to do to people, please. Like, um, and so I, I say that kind of tongue in cheek because I say it, it's funny to say that, but there are times when just as a parent, you are, you are just tired. And so it might be hard to identify this because you might just be glad that a kid complies and does, does what you're asking. So how do we begin to like notice this in our kids and support them in it? I think um, the fawn response, it's so, it's so funny that you said that, JD, because it is, it, it's often comes out in compliance and in over helpfulness and in kindness. And there's a lot of like really beautiful character qualities that can like actually be coming from a place of stress. And so I think for parents, you know, first of all, we've, we say it all the time, but like, there's no perfect parent and you can't perfectly attune to the needs of your kids all the time. So good enough is good enough, right? So we want to be good enough. We want to, you know, pay enough attention, you know, get to know our kids and all of those things. So first of all, you're not going to be perfect, but as you begin to pay attention, I think, think about your family culture. Like, are you building a family culture where it's okay to say no sometimes? Are you building a family culture where, um, sacrificial love is a really beautiful form of love, but is that the only kind of love that we're teaching? Are we only teaching that we have to sacrifice ourselves and that our needs and wants don't matter? And if we're focusing on that to an extreme level, we could actually be cultivating a fawn response unintentionally because we do want to be kind and helpful and sacrificial. But to your point, Stella, not to like the loss of our own identity and not in a way that dishonors our own needs. So think about the kind of family that you're cultivating and think about if you, if you notice a kiddo who is super, um, easily, maybe, uh, maybe their feelings get hurt really easily. You know, I, I was a really sensitive little, little person and I cried all the time and I would be really, you know, I was like the, if other, other people needed a, a bigger consequence, they just had to say Rebecca in a strong voice and I would burst into a puddle of tears. So if you've got a kiddo like that, pay attention to their behaviors. Are they doing extra things because they want to, or because they're trying to please you a little like over the top? Are they, um, and, and, and again, it's really tricky line because there's a lot of these behaviors that are really good behaviors, but we do want to like just honor and validate. Is that kid able to use their voice? If you ask that kid, where do you want to eat for your birthday? Can they answer your question? Or do they have a hard time even with like a simple, what do you want to eat? For, for a kid who's, a, who's exhibiting a fawn response, it's going to be really hard for them to ever say what they want or need um, because they don't necessarily know. Um, they, they're just so used to mirroring the people around them. So pay attention, start to give choices and options and ask questions to give voice. Uh, we talk a lot at ETC about giving voice. And I think 
it's it's harder to think about with Fawn because you're like, well, I ask them all the time what they want and they just don't care. And so it's like, how do you scaffold that skill? How do you help them get confident enough? And it might take a lot of time and you're going to have to build a lot of felt safety. Kids need to know that they're safe and loved regardless of their performance or what they're doing. Yeah, Becca, to add something to what you said, which I love. Um, I think when I think of like ETC principles, we use compromises a lot in helping children finding, um, actually we use compromises in order to help children for in the fight response part, kind of like, okay, you want this and it's too much right now. So <laughs> as a parent or caregiver or therapist, I need to meet you somewhere in the middle, right? So I feel like we can use that same principle with children who struggle to find their voice because we can allow them to do what they do best, be attuned to our needs while helping them attune to their needs. Okay, so what is something that you want? I can tell you what I need and we can come up with a compromise that works best for both of us. So I feel like that could be a good first step uh, towards that. That's really good. I, you know, I think of um, the importance of being able to identify these things and just help to, like like you were talking about scaffolding or or building an on-ramp, so to speak, Mm -hmm. into identifying your own needs and being able to take care of them, supply them. Uh, you know, it, it's easy to lose picture of the big picture of parenting, which is at some point, the the goal that we're trying to get to is that our kids are able to thrive the best they can in the world. And so there, obviously that looks different for every different child. But um, one of the dangers in not supporting our kids in the fond response is building up uh, lots of bitterness mm-hmm. um, toward ourselves. And so uh, if we're not recognizing all these times where we are being catered to over and over and over again, it does begin to harbor some resentment and some bitterness that can build up. And so, um, you know, it might feel weird to stop a child who is offering to do something for us or offering to clean something or to pick something up or whatever, and just to check their heart. But what you're actually doing is helping to free them mm-hmm. in a lot of times, a lot of instances, uh, to be able to share where they're actually at. Because um, none of us who are listening to this right now, like none of us ever want our kids to be buck- to feel internally like they're buckling under the pressure of uh, life. And that's where that fond response can really do some damage is, is in the internal kind of uh, people pleasing, needing to achieve things in order to feel loved kind of, kind of thing. So... I would love for us to turn to a necessary conversation, which is um, how this stress response in particular is so prevalent um, in the foster care and adoption world. Um, it is not uncommon. And, and we've, we all just heard a story recently of um, a child who might get placed in a home, um, whether from a domestic or international adoption. And, and the parents just say, gosh, they came home and we were expecting it to be hard. And it was not, it was great. The, kids were awesome and we were all doing a great, you know, having a great time bonding and everything was going well, building connection. And then everything went haywire. And if you're listening to this and haven't heard it, it's just a matter of time. It's a, it's a really common story within um, that foster care and adoption world. And so uh, I wonder if we can kind of unpack that a little bit for all the parents who might be, you know, scared to even bring this up because everyone's watching your family all the time and it appears you have this perfect exterior when things start to shift and turn let's give parents some hope and some and some tools kind of in this situation to um to walk through that so stella do you mind kind of talking about that dynamic and and where that comes from and, and how we can begin to help there 
Yeah. So when we think in terms of like children who are in foster care or who are adopted, um, there is a lot of transitions that they have experienced in their lives. So all of a sudden they are placed from this different home setting uh, to a new home that can be there permanent or temporary. Um, so of course there is a lot of vulnerability that comes with that. Um, and in their previous um home situations, they probably learned how to please um, their caregivers uh, in order to survive. That was a coping mechanism that they used in order to survive. So there is a lot of attachment that you can create to a coping skill, because if that's what's your safe thing in such an unsafe situation, of course, it's hard to let go of that and um, to then discover, you know, who you are and what your needs are and what your thoughts are. Um, so I think that there is a lot of grief that comes with that, uh, which then can show up as anger and resentment for uh, blocking those needs and, and, and thoughts for such a long time. Um, and then parents all of a sudden find themselves in this situation where they don't know what to do with this explosion. It feels like it's going um, from this fawn response to a fight response. All of a sudden, they have all of these words and needs that come to the surface. Um, so I think it's very important to be patient in that moment and kind of like take a step back as a parent and think, at least in this moment, this child is voicing their needs, even though it's not the way I want it to be and it's not how I would like to hear it. Um, so celebrating those wins of um, expressing what they need, expressing their feelings, and then with patience and compassion, uh, meeting those needs in a way that creates safety, um, which can help them let go of the previous coping skills because now you're providing a safe environment to the kid uh, and helping them thrive. Um, so I think that's that's a way to do that. I love that you talked about how big of a transition it is for kids. Um, and I, I don't know if you want to talk about this at all, but I know you transitioned to uh, Memphis from Albania. And I know, I, I think you know that when I was a kid, my family moved to Russia and then I was there until I was like 18. And then I moved back to America. And, you know, I think thinking about those big transitions, it really does impact you. And so when we're thinking about adoption, there might, you might not have a kid from Russia, but you might, um, and you might have a kid from a different culture, whether that's within America or outside of that. What do you think about that cultural component, Stella? How do you think that impacts people? Um, well, for many children, especially the ones who come to U.S. and they don't speak English much, which is really mm -hmm. common in the beginning, um, you ba basically are asking the children to voice their needs while they don't even have the words. <laughs> and right. while there's this pressure that you feel to express yourself. As an adult, I experience it it on a different level because of course that I want to perform the best way I can. I want to make sure that I'm communicating my needs. Um, but for a child, there's this other level of vulnerability and layer of vulnerability that uh, can be very overwhelming. Um, so I think that patience is so important in that moment and giving them choices uh, in order for them to decide what they want. Sometimes they don't know what they want, right? Because they are exposed to this new culture where everything is unfamiliar. And um, it takes time to, to just adjust to all of that. Um, so choices, I think, are so important for them to actually see two physical representations of what um, they can say and what they can do. Mm -hmm. I love that. And I think I'm thinking about... Um, 
the honeymoon phase is a lot of times what people call it. It's what you're describing. You're describing what people call the honeymoon phase of adoption or foster care where, well, everything was awesome. Everything was great. Um, and so I think it's just making you as the adult, take a, take a little bit of a, like a ref, take a minute to reflect, like take a, take a minute and pause and think about, man, is compliance really my ultimate goal as a parent? And I think for a lot of people, you know, any adult that's working with any kind of kid, it's really hard not to just want compliance because so much of the time we do want what's best for kids. And we believe if they comply with us, that's what's best. Right. Um, and I know we're talking about kids and we're talking about adoption, but whenever you grow up and you've been taught that compliance is the main thing, then you become an adult who can't negotiate their needs. That's a hallmark of secure attachment. Can't negotiate their needs, maybe in a relationship, maybe the relationship becomes codependent or maybe in a job, maybe you become, um, you just burn yourself out over and over again because you're trying so hard to comply and to be helpful. Um, People pleasing is an attractive quality (laughs) to other people. (laughs) People love a people pleaser, but for the people pleaser themselves, man, it's just, I keep coming back to you said at the beginning, Stella, that loss of identity. And then JD, you mentioned the bitterness that comes along with that because you can't, you can only please other people for so long before you just get exhausted and there's nothing left. And that's why as parents, especially when thinking about this adoption moment, you know, notice the honeymoon phase, but also like Stella said, build in those opportunities for choice and be paying attention. And then you mentioned when they get a little bit calmer, Pete Walker says at first they can't access their fight response. Well, then they can access their fight response and you're going to see some of that. And then we just continue. And, and, and again, with all of these podcasts, as you're taking steps, the main thing is building felt safety and felt safety comes through safe relationships. And a safe relationship is I'm okay with you regardless of your performance and I love you. Um, And so I just think like full circle, all the things we've been talking about here, but I just love Stella, the thought of like, how do you help them find their voice and their identity? And how do you help them name what they want and what they need and what they like? Like, it doesn't have to be super serious. It can be like, what's your favorite kind of cereal? When I moved to America, the most overwhelming choice that I had to make was walking into Walmart and picking cereal. And I would go to Subway and I would be like, why are they asking me? I was like, I don't, I'm never going to go to Subway because they're going to ask me what kind of bread and what kind of cheese and what kind of meat and what kind of toppings. And I'm going to have to answer so many questions. And I just want you to give me one thing. And I, and so I like, as you're talking, Stella, I'm resonating with the fun response a little bit because I'm thinking, man, it did take me a long time to go to a Subway or to go to a Walmart and pick cereal without feeling overwhelmed because I just wanted to, I just wanted things to go easy and to go smooth. And I think that's kind of the essence of the fawn response is you just want it to be smooth and easy in the midst of like dumb decisions, but like big decisions in your mind, <laughs> like what kind of cereal am I going to pick? Yeah. Stella, what was, what were some of those sticky points for you when you transitioned like from uh, you know, from your native culture to a foreign culture um, that, I mean, it, it's so, dear. I mean, not just, not just Albania to America, but Albania to the American South and Memphis yeah. specifically. There's is, a different layer there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, about as harsh of a transition as you could have. So what were some of those difficult things for you in that transition, if you don't mind me sharing, asking? Uh, no, absolutely. I think, first of all, there was this loss of, um, like I didn't feel okay. Let me 
let me phrase this um, in a way that can really express how I felt about it. Like there was this loss of orientation, like either like finding, like going to a grocery store, you know, I was used to having places in, in a certain way and knowing how to go to this place and not even knowing where the nearest grocery store was and um, what I could find there. And then not finding some of the foods that I had back home was just so important for that mindfulness, you know, uh, and relaxation to know that you're smelling a food that reminds you of home and it's grounding you and it's making you feel mindful in the moment. Um, so there was this loss of, of, of various things. Um, of course, initially there's the honeymoon phase that comes with the cultural adaptation phases. You're so excited. You're like, oh yes, I'm going to have a bless. I'm going to study counseling, bless some people. And then all of a sudden after six months and it's different for different people, you realize, oh my word, like this is, this is hitting me really hard. And there is some culture shock that's coming with it, uh, from people's responses to you, uh, from going, um, my culture is relationship oriented and the U S culture is very, um, task oriented. Uh, so there's a lot of emphasis on tasks and mm -hmm. less on, um, you know, relationships initially. So understanding how people were functioning and also having grace for them that this is how they function. It's different from me, but that doesn't make them, you know, less human than me. They're just, you know, different. Um, so building that tolerance for differences and learning how to communicate my needs in a way that is not offensive towards them, which of course it's, it's a journey. I probably have said things <laughs> that have made me sound sassy and, and, you know, not kind, but it's, it's a journey where we learn a lot. And, uh, that's why I'm very grateful. Do you feel like you have, uh, you know, do you have some moments of being like, okay, I feel like I have like settled back down to a, a, good, a healthy place of like, I'm feeling like myself and I've kind of know how to navigate things here. Like, are you, are you getting close to feeling that way or no? Yeah, I think support systems is one of the things that can help you, are one of the things that can help you really, um, feel grounded. And for me, a workplace like MFCC was so crucial for that, you know, a place that is so trauma informed and it's so informed about the transitions that a person can experience. Um, and providing that felt safety, that connection that I needed to feel like, okay, I'm not just, you know, a foreigner wandering here and trying to provide counseling to people. Um, I just felt so connected to, to the people around me and then community and friends. So I think, those have been the main things that have helped me feel more grounded and express myself while I am still trying to adjust to a culture that is still foreign in a way, even though familiar in some other ways. Yeah. Uh, well, I love that. And I love, I love you sharing your, your examples and your story because I think for, for folks who do have kids from maybe a different cultural context in their house who um, were adopted as you know older kids who did have like memories and, and kind of core experiences in a different setting. Hopefully, hearing your perspective and your story of coming over can help parents be mindful about um, experiences and thoughts and smells and foods and you know tastes and stuff that that can be integrated into their regular life as um, as family. So. Um, Becca, for you, you know, you, you had sort of a reverse experience from what Stella was talking about where you transitioned from, you know, America to Russia and then back. Were there anything in particular from your, from your time coming back from 
you know, your entire childhood being in Russia. Was there anything that, that stuck out to you when you came back as to like, ah, I mean, not just Subway necessarily or, or cereal, but like things that, that you really needed to get a grip on when you came back? Um, I think, so Rush, uh, Russian culture is even more task-oriented, Stella, than American. <laughs> and so it's, uh, and then I, I came to Jackson, Tennessee, so like South-South. So it's a different pace. And so it was hard for me. Um, people thought I was really rude all the time because in Russia, it's about, you know, you walk into the store, you pick up the milk and you just, you don't, you don't say anything. You, you don't have to say any words. You just right. pick it up, you scan it and you keep going. I have not been to New York, but I've heard it's like similar to a New York or Boston culture. And so coming to the South, it was like, oh, I have to pause and I have to ask this person that I'm never going to see again. How are you? And, and so, and I'm not trying to sound like I did it in a, like I'm doing it in a fake way, but it's like, I did have to learn the culture of that. Um, and it, and it's time consuming <laughs> to, to like do all the Southern pleasantries. But now I have gotten so used to it that I feel like if I were to go back and visit, I would probably be like, oh, that person was rude to me. So it's interesting how you really do adapt to your surroundings. And so I think, you know, kind of full circle back to like our whole bigger conversation, like people adapt to their surroundings. And so I think, you know, you can be really intentional about the kind of family that you want to build for your kids. Like you can think about and, and, um, you can teach values. I like that you brought that up. So you can teach like family values, but no, for me, the conversations were hard. I mean, I could, JD, we could have a whole, we could have a whole thing about the, I didn't, I had never driven a car. I had barely ever ridden in a car. I had to learn how to drive as an adult which is embarrassing to go to the DMV with all the teenagers. And I failed my test a couple of times. It was awful. Um, so, I mean, there was a lot of adjustments that I had to make um, to the culture. There was adjustments to just the way of life. There was adjustments to ways of thinking. Um, I do think when you do have an experience of moving between countries, you see the world differently. I think you just see people's perspectives a little differently. And so I definitely am grateful for like my childhood and my experiences. It was not easy to go there and it was not easy to come back. Um, yeah. But I think it gives a different, just gives a different perspective. I think it's easier to uh, think about the culture and the transitions of, of, of like little bitty, you know, what we might see as a little bitty transition. It's easier for me to go, oh, that is a big thing. And, and I, Stella brought up a lot, uh, the loss. So anytime you have a major transition, you're losing familiar people, places, sounds, smells, and you're gaining a lot too, but it's, a, it is associated with a lot of loss. And so I think that was a little, little bit of a rambly response to your question, but man, I, I had to learn a lot and it does not feel good to be learning things that other people learned when they were teenagers. <laughs> so. Yeah. I, th- I would love to kind of for us to begin wrapping up there, because it does bring us back to the point of that, that we talk about uh, in ETC all the time, that compassion doesn't have a shelf life, right? Mm-hmm. And for our kids who are, and, and whether you're talking about kids who are biologically born into a family, kids who are, you know, come to a family through adoption, through foster care, um, temporary permanent placements, um, you know, family care, you know, going to live with grandma or going to live with auntie or whatever, like no matter no matter the situation, 
that compassion uh, does not have a shelf life and can always go toward the building of connection between you and the kids that are in your care. And so uh, I would definitely just try to, to leave all of us with that uh, last thought. Do either of you have, have kind of last thoughts we want to leave people with on this topic today before we go? Um, for me, it's just a reminder that since that we've been talking about all the stress responses and this was the last one, just a reminder that our stress responses don't identify who we are and they don't label us. Um, they are just ways that we respond in very vulnerable moments and kind of like to separate ourselves from, you know, what our stress response is um, and to dig in deeper and, and find where our identity is and what is at the core of who you are and who we are in those moments of calm and peace uh, is way more important than the moments when we are stressed, you know, and to extend that same compassion that we extend to other people, especially the people who struggle with the phone response towards ourselves. Um, I think that can be the beginning of a new journey and can bring a lot of change and growth. Um, so, yeah. Awesome. Becca? Oh, I mean, what else can you add besides that? <laughs> so that's everything. If you are identifying with a fond response and you're listening to this, if you begin to just be aware of it, you might feel really shamed. You might be like, oh my goodness, I just did it again. I said yes, and I meant to say no. Or you might say no, and the person gets mad at you, and you're like, oh, that felt really awful and terrible. And so I just think extending yourself the same compassion that you would extend anybody else um, is just going to be so crucial for the journey. Thank y'all so much for, for joining us today for this. This is, this is really, really great. Stella, Becca, appreciate it so much. Well, I do hope that this episode was as helpful for you as it was for me. Just thinking of folks that um, we know who either deal with this as their stress response or might have this as their stress response that they haven't identified yet. Um, it's just as, as great. It's great to know and have a couple of go-to things um, for mindfulness in relationship. And so I hope that um, has had that same effect for you. Uh, next week, we're continuing on with new episodes um, with one of our favorite people on earth. And so you will not want to miss next week's episode. I'm just going to leave it at that. And it will obviously uh, come out next Tuesday, uh, depending on when you're listening to this. Uh, you know, if you're listening somewhere in the future, it may already be out. So check it out. Uh, but that'll be a brand new episode. Um, one that we're very, very excited about that we'll announce uh, closer to the time that it airs. And so for everyone at Empowered to Connect, for um, the Ottingers, for Becca McKay, for Stella Sinanai, for uh, Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers all of our audio, and for Tad Jewett, who's the creator of the music behind the Empowered to Connect podcast. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I will see you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast.